Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We'll be studying uh, verses 1 through 11 again, going through that passage which we started last week. Philippians 2, and we'll just start right there in the beginning in verse 1. The word of God says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to, the in, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. Let's pray. As as David prayed, God, uh, we, we need you. We need your spirit to work in us, to give us eyes to see, to give us a passion and a mindset of humility that would uh, defy what the world values. Help us to love one another, to have the same mind, the same mindset of of humility toward one another, to consider and value one another as more significant than than ourselves. And God, I I know that we won't do that if not, uh, if we don't see a picture of, of Christ. If we don't see who Christ is, what he has done, the reality of his coming, and so help us gaze on that uh, and, and be changed as we see Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> At the most basic level, um, when you, whenever you walk into a church, the primary problem that you will face or I will face, I think that anyone will face, is uh, the, greatest, you know, the greatest temptation that we'll have, the greatest sin that we'll have to fight, the most fundamental is, is a temptation to, to sinful self-focus, to, 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 to be focused too much on yourself. It's a temptation to have an elevated or an, an inflated, or it could be deflated, it could be overly negative as well, but generally it's inflated. Self-focus is the most fundamental sin we have committed. I think pride is, is 
is at the root of, of the greatest of, of, of all sin. Some belief about ourselves and some unbelief. Because it's the most fundamental, it's, it's often the most subtle as well. Focus on ourselves. We can, it can be overt. Um, the sin of Adam was an overt belief in the garden in Genesis 3. Um, there was a thought that if he just took what God said not to, the result would benefit him. I will be better. I will be like God. That was the belief. Pride. Self-focus. Not focusing on God. And it can be covert as well. Um, Jesus, uh, when he described the Pharisees in John 12, um, the Pharisees are described as loving the praise of men. So they, they, on the outside, very religious looking, but inside there's a heart of love for people's praise, a self-focus rather than the praise of God. Um, it can seem noble. Uh, the, one of the disciples, Peter, when Jesus told all the disciples, you're going to abandon me one day, which they did, Peter said, even if everybody leaves you, I will not deny you. Peter had a view of himself that was higher than reality. He did abandon Jesus, and it was only the grace of Jesus that brought him back. Or it could be just overtly also laced with jealousy. Think of the, 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 you know, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son runs away, and his father receives him. If you remember the, in that story, the attitude, the parable, the attitude of the, the son who, was, who stayed with his dad the whole time, his attitude was one of selfishness. He said to his father, all these years I worked for you and you never threw me a party. And here's this son that ran away from you. It can be filled with jealousy. And it can sometimes grow too. Uh, there was a... In, in, Second Chronicles, I believe, 26. There's a story of a, a king, a young king named Uzziah. And the story starts out really well. He, he um, followed God, it says, in his, in his early years. And he got a lot of success as a result. But then it says he grew proud. And his end, um, his, his self-confidence, his self-focus, led to a, a very serious humbling in his life. Because pride is, I think, the most common and most relatable to all of us, I don't think anyone struggles um, to not think of themselves. I think we, we struggle the opposite, right? Um, it's the easiest also to throw around in accusations against one another. We can assume the pride of others against us, in the, within the church especially, And also being the most common sin, it's the most fundamental sin that needs to be fought within the church. And, and, and I think that's why, in part, this passage is written. The solution to self-focus in this passage is to be selfless. It is to be humble. Humility involves love, compassion for others, as you can see there in verse th uh, 4, 3, 2, sorry. Verse 2, compassion for others. Humility involves considering others as being more important than oneself. Humility involves looking to the interests of others. And this is why 
I think it's the primary um, command that Paul gives for the Philippians and for us is to have this shared mindset, a shared thinking, kind of thinking of humility. It's a command that we all need to apply to our hearts in order to be, uh, to fight for health within the church. Since self-focus, pride is our common enemy, humility is an overwhelming command in scripture for, for people who claim the name of Christ, for, for, for the church, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18, 4, Jesus said. Paul said to the Romans, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In Ephesians, walk manner in a worthy in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is Ephesians four, with all humility, put on as God chosen as God's chosen ones. Humility, Colossians three. And Peter speaks the same way: have a unity of mind, have sympathy toward one another, tender heart, have a humble mind. It's First Peter three. And clothe yourself, he says later on in First Peter 5, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Our humility is a big deal to God. Something he calls, calls, calls us to. So it shouldn't be a surprise that at the, the very heart of this letter, and you look at all the commentators and they think this is the heart, especially verses 6 through 11, this is the heart of the letter, the place where we learn the most about God, some, some real tangible truth about who Jesus is, and where we learn about what it means to follow the heart of God, we see an example of humility. The humility of Jesus. So I think if we're burdened, if you're coming in with a burden, convicted of pride, self-focus, if, if there's some conviction of sin, the solution to this pride is Jesus. Jesus is, is what we need to be humble and what we need to be a humble church. Now, if, if we say, well, I already have Jesus, right? Like, I'm trusting in Jesus. What, what, why, why do you say, I need Jesus? I think Paul explains that. Is there, we, we often sometimes, we often sometimes, sometimes we look beyond. We think, okay, yes, Jesus is great. I have something taken care of in him. Now, where's the program? Where's the, where's the seven-step process that I can go through to fix this problem? Paul's solution is not a program, and it's not a process. I think he says, above all things, in this passage, in order to be a humble person, in order to collectively be a humble church, we need to look at Jesus. We need to see who Jesus is. If I'm, if I'm being proud... The issue is not that I've joined the pro, I, you know, I didn't sign up for the program. I'm, I'm forgetting something about who Jesus is. And I need to remember. I need to be reminded of who he is. And as we look at the picture of Christ, scripture says we are being changed. 
in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 3. As we look at who Christ is, people who trust in Christ, God transforms us. He shapes us. He matures us. So let's do that. Let's, let's look at four depictions of Christ in this passage. And then we'll close with four applications. First, Jesus was divinely full. Jesus was divinely full. In his existence, full of divine glory. Now, before we go in further into this passage, I just want to make a quick comment that this passage has been debated heavily for certain things that are said in, in it, the way that Paul describes Christ. For example, Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, and then there's all sorts of debate. Well, why does he say form? That makes it sound like he's not really God. He's just like a picture of God. Um, and similarly, it says that Jesus emptied himself, and then the debate rages on. Well, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Did he stop being God? Did he let go of that? What, what does it mean? I think all of those, I don't want to get into those specifically, because I think if you look the, at the picture as a whole, if you look at the whole picture, the whole context of the passage, I think the way and the, termino- the terminology Paul uses to describe Christ makes sense. In other words, the way that Paul describes the deity of Christ makes best sense when you compare Christ's deity to his humanity and see, and see the whole picture. So, first... Though, let's, number one again, Jesus is divinely full. As, as, as very clearly, I think, in verse 6, this he is described. He was in the form of God. And he was equal with God. In the form of God, and he was equal with God. Literally, Jesus existed. He existed in the form of God. We, we studied John 1 for Advent this year, and the, this language is very similar to, to what we see in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This, along with that passage, is probably one of the greatest statements, if you look at it as a whole, one of the greatest statements of the deity of Christ. The one who we, we didn't see God, we saw a man, they saw a person, That one who existed in human form was none other than God himself. Not merely a human servant. That's not not possible by Paul's statement. And he's not another God. He's equal with God. There is one God. Jesus is God. Triune. One with the Father. That's why he said, I and the Father are one. That's what Jesus, how he spoke about himself. What does this mean? I think it means that the revealed character and nature of God as described in scripture applies to Jesus it applies to him as well so all of God's character his perfection Christ has that being equal with God and I think the thing that Paul wants us to see of all the nature and character of God the quality that Christ had is that he, is being God, was perfectly happy with who he was. Perfectly happy in himself. He does not need us. Jesus existed eternally, having everything, all, all of it, having, having, having authority, power. 
In Acts 17, Paul uh, describes God to the people of Athens this way, and this applies to Christ as equal with God. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the giver. He doesn't need us. And these qualities belong to Jesus. In his eternal deity, he existed perfectly independent of the things that he made. I was listening to a, a podcast a while back and there was a not, a, not a Christian person talking about just viewing, viewing uh, the supernatural very naturalistically, talking about the Norse gods and how Christianity came into Northern Europe and, and um, the Norse gods had to die. And, and in the way, the way the pers- this, this, this podcast host described it was the Norse gods were killed because the people that followed, that worshipped them, stopped believing in them. In other words, these gods were dependent on their belief. They were dependent on the belief of these people groups. And so they stopped believing in these gods, and they, they t- turned to Christianity, and, and the gods died. God's not like that. That's not this God. He doesn't need you to believe in him to exist. He is not in any way dependent Upon man. In fact, God describes himself as revealing himself to those who don't look for him, who don't believe in him. That's how God describes himself. Jesus existed divine, f- divinely full. However, Paul doesn't stop there. He, the, the, the full deity of Christ is it's essentially used as a point of contrast in this passage to help describe to us what Jesus did, the way that we see him. He, being full, being equal with God, He came down to earth. And so the second thing is that he fully emptied himself. He took off royal robes, glory and honor, honor and authority, and he put on the robes of a servant. God doesn't need us. Paul makes that clear. He made it clear in Athens. However, that doesn't contradict the reality that God loves to make himself known. We don't need to be... Scripture is proof, is an example of God making himself known. God is not silent. He loves revealing himself. And Jesus is the greatest example of God revealed. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, How did he reveal himself? Being in the form of God, being equal with God, Christ. He could, he might have displayed blinding glory on Mount Sinai like God God did. Or like Isaiah saw God in in the throne room and and he wept and feared. But that's not how God spoke and revealed himself in Christ. This passage says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I think that what he's trying to say is that all the glory, all the majesty, all the, all the perfection that he owns and is in his nature was not a reason to withhold himself from coming down to us. 
He has everything he needs. He needs nothing. And yet the same God came down. There's no good comparison to this in, in, in all the world, right? Like you could say the, 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 the CEO became the janitor or the general put on the soldier's uniform. But there is no greater example. There's no perfect example of humility in, in the world. Jesus, full of honor and authority, emptied himself. And as Paul says, rather, that, rather than like holding on to this glorious honor and authority and coming down, just displaying honor and authority for us to see, he emptied himself. He, he didn't abandon his, his deity in any way. He relinquished the honor and authority due him as divine son of God. He took off the royal robe and he came in rags. And there are many passages in the gospel that show us this. That Jesus laid aside honor and authority. Let's look at three quick ones. And in Matthew 13, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he's teaching in the synagogue and, and, and everybody sees him and they take offense at him. They, they, they're, they're marveling, but they take offense at him. How does he talk like this? How does he work these miracles? And the, the, the statement they make is, isn't this the carpenter's son? He's just a humble carpenter. This is nobody really special. And then in, in Matthew 21, we see a really good example, which we'll celebrate this Easter. How does Jesus come into Jerusalem? Lowly, riding on a donkey, to fulfill prophecy. Not like a king, not like a ruler, showing his divine authority and honor. He comes in on a donkey. And then in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be betrayed, he's in the garden. And one of his disciples takes up a, a, a knife and he cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus stops him. And he says to his, his uh, disciples, do you think that I couldn't appeal to my father and 12 legions of angels would come to my aid. But he laid that aside. He laid aside his honor and his authority and he took, he took off those robes and he put on the rags of a servant. And in all this, the greatest marker of his, his humility is, is his humanity. He put on flesh and and. Paul really wants us to know that he put on flesh. He was really man. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. The God of all, the creator of us, put on flesh like we wear. And it was in this form, the form of a human servant, that leads to the, the third depiction. Jesus was drained to death. Just a further evidence that you know, ghosts don't bleed, apparitions don't die. Jesus, he didn't simply empty himself of honor and authority, taking the form of a servant. Yes, he came in on the, on the donkey. Yes, he was despised. He went beyond to, the, to, the, to the, the very depths 
of human suffering. He went to, the de- to death. So what did that humility look like? It looked like obedience. Obedience to death. and Not, not a death by natural causes, but a death as a criminal on a cross. And it, if, you're, if you're in the, the world of the Philippians, that's like electric chair. Like not, not glamorous. Like your savior... Paul is like boasting in this Christ, talking about him, and he says, the one that you serve and worship died in an electric chair. He was drained to death. Why did Jesus do this? Paul doesn't, he doesn't answer that question here. His point isn't primarily to explain why Jesus died in our relation to it. There are a couple indicators. The point Paul is trying to make is that Jesus humbled himself just like he's calling them to humble themselves and it paid off. And we'll see that in a second. It paid off. The founder of our faith, he founded the faith with an act of humility and it paid off. But there are two words that we can't pass over that help indicate why Jesus did what he did. First is servant and the second is obedience. He was a servant, and he, he, obedient. he was obedient. Whom did Jesus serve? With compassion, he served us. He served us. He served us in life and in death. There's a Super Bowl ad last week that got a lot of buzz in the Christian circles that I see on X. Uh, it's a he gets us ad that depicted Jesus washing feet. And, and I, I don't want to comment on whether or not I think that was helpful. But the, the point of the ad was to show, I, I think, that Jesus was a servant. And the example he, of the service that they showed was that Jesus washed feet. And that is true. What an amazing act of service. Jesus served washing the feet of those who sinned against him were his enemies but death the cross is by far the greatest example of service the son of man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many far greater the greatest example par excellence above it all was the service of going to the cross as a ransom for me. Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Payment on the cross that we might be made the righteousness of God. How? Through Christ. We started talking about pride, right? the sin that convicts us, the the most basic thing, Jesus died for pride, every offense that you've made against God if your faith is in him. He paid for that. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Jesus humbled himself to death and he offers grace in exchange, forgiveness for all of your pride. The death of Christ is the best display of humble service, compassion, love. My sin, my, my, sin, my whole sin, which, which was taking me to the grave, all of it, 
Christ, his whole body on the cross in exchange for mine. And whom was he obedient to? He obeyed, he obeyed the Father. And this is where, in this passage, you can see divine will looking all over this passage. All over the life and death of Jesus. Not happenstance, not caught up in the wrong crowd and, 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 and died as a mistake. The Son of God goes to his death as it is written. He was obedient to God. He was obedient to the Father. And this leads to the fourth depiction of Jesus. Because we know... And this passage is so bold to say, God didn't leave Jesus. He didn't abandon him. Jesus is divinely vindicated. In his obedience, he received from the Father full vindication. So in response to the Son of Man, he emptied himself of honor and authority. He served us in rags. He humbly obeyed God even to the point of death. And so God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been vindicated. Any humility he endured has been returned back in Glory and honor. He won. He obeyed and it resulted in victory. He set aside honor and authority and in doing so, he both revealed God in himself. How do you you see the greatest picture of who God is? You see it in Christ and you see a servant. He revealed himself. I and the Father are one. He revealed himself going to the grave, dying, being raised. And in in, in the humility of Christ, we see hope, the greatest hope for us. The greatest hope for humanity. You can have access to God. The God whom is over all. The God-man who is seated and reigning, whom every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess, willingly or not, one day... Yes, you are Lord over all. Yes, you created me and I denied you. In the name of Christ, because of his, his, his um, example, because of what he did, by faith in him, that can be a joyful thing. That can be our reality. Yes, you are Lord. Yes, you are Lord. I see it. He died for me. And I will live for him. He's the door. This is Jesus. Divinely full. He fully emptied himself. He drained it all to death. And he's been divinely vindicated. Let's look at the four quick applications. I think the the first thing is that we should marvel. We should marvel that this is This is our God. And we should model. Marvel at the person and work of Christ. I I love that there's a hymn called And Can It Be. I'm a sucker for old hymns by Charles Wesley. And and the, the the first verse, one of the lines says, Died he for me 
who caused his pain. I caused him the pain. He died for me. Jesus humbled himself. And in doing so, he showed us the glory of God. A glory that we can taste for eternity by trusting in Christ. He died for me. I want him. And then we model it. You cannot leave this passage and think, oh, that's a nice example. Cool. This is an example for us to follow. The the humility of Christ. We follow in his footsteps. Only in him. Only through faith. Have this mind among yourselves. And this mindset, this mindset of humility is yours in Christ Jesus. I I think the ESV gets that well. It's yours in Christ Jesus. You only will be humble in Christ Jesus. By looking at him, I gaze upon him, he transforms me. I got, if, I'm, if I'm being proud, I look to him. Secondly, you can trust God. I think this passage just calls us to trust God. Humility is a call to trust God. Jesus trusted God. He trusted God. He entrusted himself to the Father. He trusted God. He lived in faithful obedience. His will was to do the Father's will, and God vindicated him. I think there's a temptation, and I think there's pride in this, right? But there's a temptation, like, if I consider others as more important than myself, I'm not going to get anything out of it. And we think that. We often think that. And that's selfish, right? Like, that's, that's what we're trying to fight. If I don't get, you know, what am I going to get out of it? This passage doesn't promise you the outcome that you might be looking for, but it promises you that if you trust God, it's going to work out. It's true for all who trust in Jesus. All will be well in the end. Third, you really, in, if, in, when you're living in humility... Just as Christ, you're really obeying God, not man. I think this, this so often we, 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 we see the Christian life as mano y mano, or womano y womano, right? Like we, we, we gotta, we gotta, we think that it's really between that person and myself. But humility is a call first and foremost to obey God. Jesus obeyed God above all in coming and dying for us. So in the, in the moments when humility is difficult, ask myself, is this because I'm comparing myself with them and I'm, I'm basing my humility off of who I, who, my value of them? Or am I seeking to obey God? Jesus obeyed God. I think, I think there's a lot of comfort in, in, the mom, in, in the moments when it's difficult to, be, to live in humility toward one another, when we're, remem- or when we're reminded that we are ultimately obeying God in this. So we look to him as we look to the interests of others. And then finally, humility. This, is, this was a quote that I read recently by um, an author and a counselor. His name's Ed Welch. And he said, humility is a partner to compassion. Humility is a partner to compassion. In other words, they're like peanut butter and jelly. They go together. Humility and compassion or love. 
You can't live humbly toward one another with a cold heart. It's got to be warmed by the heart of Christ. So he emptied himself. I see that, and that applies to my life. And that love with which he loves me, I know he is showing them. They have been loved by God. So let the love of Christ warm our hearts. And look, look in humi- uh, in, with compassionate humility toward one another. True compassion flows down to us from the heart of Christ. So I look to Christ and I see that in that is love and compassion. Humility is a partner to compassion. So the founder, just as we close, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he came in humility. He came in humility. Let's do the same toward one another in his power. Christ, we exalt you. You are high and lifted up. You've been given a name, Lord, the divine name. You are Lord over all. May we look to you as we live together as a body of Christ and may we die to ourselves in doing so by your power, through your, through your work. In Christ's name we pray, amen.